Welcome to episode 11 of the Hard Yards Rugby League podcast and we are most definitely dedicated to those who do the hard yards in the game of rugby league in this podcast as you will tell by our opening comments. I'm your host Lee Addison this is a podcast for you wherever you are in the rugby league world. We are your advocate, your supporter, your voice and we'll always tell it as we see it and where appropriate pull no punches. How are you doing everybody? Sorry about the delay of this podcast, um, been busy with my own sort of coaching with semi-finals and finals and had a great season with my school team, um, um, been a lot going on. Um, also, uh, I wanted to make sure we got this right and got the detail right and everything and make sure that um, everything was, was spot on and there was no, no blowback. Um, you'll hear a lengthy opening comment from me. And then it will be Robert Bergen from Latin America or Latin Heat, uh, South American Rugby League. It's quite an amazing story. Hope you're doing well. We're dedicated to those of you who are doing the hard yards in the game of rugby league, wherever you are in the world. If you listen to this podcast and you want to contribute or you re- something resonates with you, admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au is our email. Uh, Facebook and Instagram is at Rugby League Coach. Twitter is at RL Coach on the net. Let's get on with it, shall we? Get ready for a long opening comment. When you listen to this, if it resonates, if you've been affected by any of these issues or similar, then please reach out. Please comment on, your show, on our social media because staying quiet will not solve anything. Either way, just comment with your thoughts, because people need your support. The team at the Hard Yard Rugby League podcast has been made aware of a rugby league administration somewhere in the world that we believe is unfit for purpose, and some people have managed to position themselves so that they have too much power and are using that for their own gain and to restrict and scupper others. People who administer big rugby league competitions should not act as dictators or as part of a secret society. By big, we mean a jurisdiction that covers thousands of square kilometres. By big, we mean a group of competitions that covers hundreds of organisations and impacts several hundred juniors and coaches, managers and officials that are associated. Not to mention the supporters, the family, the friends who invest so much of their own time, their money and their heart and soul into achieving success and enjoyment through this group of rugby league competitions in this jurisdiction. We'll call the people involved, uh, the the, the players, the fans, etc. We'll call them the stakeholders. The people who run the competitions, the various competitions and the group overseeing it, we'll, we'll call them the administrators. And the group overseeing it, the highest, most powerful administrators, we will call the executive. And they are the executive of the group of competitions underneath them. The group of competitions exists within what we will call the jurisdiction in order to separate it from other jurisdictions. The organisations that enter teams to play in this group of competitions we will refer to as the team or teams. And I'm now going to tell you a story that you may find unbelievably wrong. Imagine Peter Beattie, the chairman of the NRL, also being the chairman of an NRL club, 
let's say, South Sydney rabbit holes for geography purposes. And not only that, he influences many things so that his club benefits in those dual roles. Imagine he also runs the on-field messages for the NRL side, the rabbit holes. And imagine that in season 19, the rabbit holes have a real discipline problem. So much so that one opposition club gets 16 clips of video of their poor behaviour from one game including their players flicking the middle finger to the crowd. We have seen that, and we know that during this game, um, the equivalent of Peter Beattie was on the field running water. Imagine nothing happens about this, and imagine that the person who, who runs the game is either ignoring it, letting it happen, or maybe even influencing it, judging by some comments to a referee heard by supporters watching a live stream recently. Well, this is happening, folks. This happens in one of the biggest jurisdictions in the rugby league world, impacting hundreds of players, male and female, 18 years and under, and impacting many, many teams. Many players from this jurisdiction go on to feature in some of the highest levels of rugby league that there is. Chances are that many of the people listening to this podcast will also have been impacted negatively by this. There may be players or officials who feel they've been wronged by this system. And when they hear this, there will be many things that resonate them. Well, it's time to speak up, and it's time to fight back. Anyway, back to the issue at hand. To avoid accusations or questions in such a big group of competitions, is it important that administrators maintain transparency and openness, and that protocols are in place in writing, and that they can be referenced at any given time? If these protocols are not yet in writing, then it is important that stakeholders are consulted regularly to develop and tighten these protocols and that there's an acceptance that societies and times change and that those protocols have to be constantly reviewed and critically in order to move with the times. If those protocols aren't in writing or the writing is loose or, ambigu uh, or ambiguous, then they remain open to interpretation. So, for example, when it comes to eligible players, for example, um, if the rules aren't tight in black and white, they can be open to interpretation. People can then get them wrong, but don't know that they're getting them wrong. All stakeholders, all of us own the game. The administrators of the game, they administrate it for the mutual benefit of all stakeholders, or should do anyway. Anything not resembling that could be accused of being autocratically run, or a dictatorship, or being run on the spot or for personal gain. And these things are magnified even more and the issues are even more important when it involves hundreds of people aged under 18 years, because they're children. I've been made aware of many cases and many tales of decision made by the administrators of this group of competitions that change lives negatively and help ruin potential career opportunities. While at the same time they hide behind their so-called successes, the collateral damage to anyone not part of the executive group is covered up and I'm going to tell you how. So now I want you to imagine that you are a stakeholder at a small team in the lower divisions of that said group of competitions. You're the coach. You and your colleagues band together and decide that you want to be in the highest available division and be the best that you can be. You look up to the highest divisions and you see huge levels of recruitment from other teams and other jurisdictions and nations, large levels of sponsorship, large levels of incentives being offered to join the bigger teams, things such as clothes and opportunities for free. 
links both financial and non-financial with professional clubs outside the jurisdiction that you're in. You therefore assume that, as there is nothing in writing forbidding these things, and they seem to be going on left, right and centre, then it must be okay to proceed in much the same manner. You want your team to get to the top. You're competitive and ambitious. You want the players in your team to achieve great things and go on to make a career, either in the sport or in whatever they decide to choose. If they don't make a career in sport, you at the very least want them to carry on in society as excellent human beings who have career goals and a happy existence. You want to change people's lives for the better, quite frankly. So you do your research and you work yourself to the bone. Remember you're the coach of this team with your fellow uh, stakeholders from your team. You all spend your spare time devoted to this task. Your first problem is that you have no money in the bank. A bank balance of zero and no money of pot of money to tap into. You firstly raise significant amounts of sponsorship. <clears throat> you and your colleagues write literally hundreds of letters and reach out to people to create a situation where you can provide life-changing opportunities for the people at your team. You have a very basic Spartan gym. So you secure lots of money to build a gym that is up there with one of the best in the competition. Eventually, the programme your stakeholders are developing creates significant interest and people are knocking your door down to join. We're talking something like a 200% growth in playing numbers in under 18 months. You keep winning and eventually you land at the top table, the top division. Not at anyone's expense, may I add, because there is a vacancy. You've lost one game in two years and you've played to exactly the same rules as everybody else. You and your team have done this all on the smell of an oily rag and a vision and a dream. Through the combined wisdom and vast experience of your coaches and administrators. Your team now features in newspapers and other media outlets. Players in your team start to achieve bigger and better playing opportunities and kick on in their career. Not only this, you've spent an equal amount of time on your junior development, putting in long-term programmes, um, putting them in place for everything you can imagine, and your juniors have all landed at the top table too. In that context, you've got to the top table, you're in the big time. Feeling at this stage like you're a welcome addition to the top table, you and your stakeholders can buy, compile a list of what seem like common sense suggestions to improve the competition. There were real radical ideas put forward, such as home advantages to teams finishing higher in a ladder. Can you imagine that? And a more equitable final series. But I bet you can all get what is coming next, can't you? Because this is when the problems start. As the coach, you don't go to the meeting, but your fellow stakeholders report that there was open hostility in the meeting towards your group's ideas. There's no need to change, and that's just the way that this is done here, was the general gist. So you just brush it off and look ahead to your next season at the top table, which is a big thing for your group. Your, ter- your team plays the first game the year later at the, at the top table and a 16, 17-year-old is a referee. Even younger people and unqualified people are the touch judges. The players range from 15 to 18 years of age and a few of them have gone on to play at very high levels since. The officials are the same age, if not younger. Fast forward to the last round and your team is in the mix to finish top of the competition with one game to go. But exploiting a loophole in the law, your opposition say the game is cancelled three hours before kick-off 
so that they finish in top spot and instead you have to settle for a lower place in the ladder. You are told by the executive that that's the rule and it's the way it is, despite there being many free weeks that you could reschedule this match. About half a decade later, that rule still hasn't been fixed. It then comes down to the semi-finals and because, through no fault of your own, you ended up finishing lower down on the ladder, you asked for a neutral semi-final because you didn't have the chance to play for a higher spot, yet everyone else did. They've all played about 20% more games than you have. The executive bow and the neutral venue is declared. It's 10 minutes away from your semi-final opposition and an hour away from you. Very neutral. During that semi-final game, your players complain to you as coach that the officials are laughing at them when they concede tries. Some of the tries given against your team are ridiculously dodgy and the players complain. You are not prone to criticising referees as a coach, but you feel compelled to go through the video and find examples of things you want to ask questions about. Surely you should have the right to ask questions. But of course, there's no process available to you via the channels that you are aware of. As an extremely experienced coach who has seen many things over the, over the years, you have a real problem with this refereeing. You sent something untoward. You edit the tape to find the clips that you have questions about. After about two hours editing the tape, you are only approximately 17 minutes into the game. So that's two hours finding problems or questions that you want to ask the referee, i.e. why is this decision made, etc, etc, any inconsistencies. You get complaints from your players too who are devastated at how they feel they've been treated. They can handle being beaten fairly, but not like this. We are talking spates of penalties against. Penalties given at the crucial moments when you're getting on top. Your team getting taken back 11 metres and then, and as many refs have admitted they do off the record over the years, your team gets the flurry of penalties towards the end of the game when the result is a foregone conclusion to make the penalty count look less lopsided in the aftermath. The following season you are made aware that the situation I made earlier about the president of the executive becoming the president chairman of one of the biggest teams of the top team biggest teams at the top table so effectively um, Beatty, Peter Beatty has now got the South Sydney Rabbitohs as well in this context so we'll now call this team the special team okay so I'll just explain that again the guy who runs the game in the jurisdiction that we're talking about now has the top job in one of the teams in that jurisdiction so we will call them the special team, and they're in the top table. Not only that, over the ensuing years, he runs their water on game day. And trust me, he's not running water because he's the only person in the organisation willing or able to do it. His organisation is one of the biggest in the jurisdiction, and he has many suitable people to choose from. Imagine the CEO or chairman of Brisbane Broncos saying, move over, Alfie, I'm running the water for this team now. What's that chair or president going to do next? Pull a jersey on? The year in question, your team finishes a position which all previous years secures you a home tie in the finals. And yes, it's above the special team and you beat them extremely convincingly in the round games. Your team celebrate the excellent achievement and you tell your players that they should prepare for a home semi-final. And then you receive an email saying that the rules have changed and that all semi-finals from now on will be played at neutral venues. 
and your team is the furthest away geographically from this so-called neutral venue, by far. You smell a rat. By all means, if this was announced at the start of the year before a ball had been kicked, if stakeholders were consulted, then it's fair enough. But because this season is near its end, and then the decision is made, it smacks of inconsistency or sloppiness at best. The following year, you are once again one of the standard bearers in the top table competition. To put this into context, you have come from the third to first division at lightning speed, quicker than anyone else. And not only that, you're a serious title challenger. Every year you're in the top, ta top division, the top table, which is now in its third year for you. Traditional teams that have been operated for decades are now being overtaken by your team, which has been in operation for not even half a decade. You constantly finish above the special team. Of course, you expect to cop some hate. That's human nature. But when somebody seemingly abuses their power to actively seek to change the course of your progress, then you have a real problem and you have many questions to ask. You have been in charge of your team for all that time and you have never had a player sent off. You have a rule that if one of your players are sent off for in intentional foul play, then you ban them for a season. Your players respect your demand for discipline and it works a treat. Until, of course, you play against a special team. Once again, you beat them comfortably, but towards the end, there is an allegation of biting uh, directed towards one of your players. The referee is told, but takes no on-field action. So you don't think anything of it. You ask around your team and you find out that something happened and you take the appropriate action the day after, based on the principles that we mentioned earlier. Years after your arrival at the top table, it is still unqualified children acting as touch judges in most of these games. In many cases, just using a shirt instead of a flag. And their performance overall in this game, and many of them, is blatantly laughable. Many of them just aren't competent. But you know, you just know that this won't be the end of it. You arrange for the games professionally, to be professionally filmed yourself. Because the executive don't organise filming of these games. So yours is the only video of the game that exists. You hear rumours of the president of the special team. And also the game in this jurisdiction, remember. Going around a meeting showing everyone pictures on his phone of bite marks. That you hear are quite significant. At this meeting, the majority of the people present definitely weren't at the game. And probably didn't care much about the sport or rugby league. So let's get this straight. A 17-year-old has been accused in a very public forum with circumstantial evidence and his name of that of your organisation is getting dirtied in a very public and influential forum and you don't have any right of reply. Also, you live in a country where people are given the assumption of innocence until proven guilty, normally. How sloppy and un unprofessional of the president of the executive of the game and chairman, president and water carrier of the special team. You are not aware of any judiciary process in this group of competitions. One, because your players have never been in trouble before and still haven't been sent off. And two, because you've never received or been made aware of a manual or a rule book or bylaws relating to the game in this jurisdiction. Remember what I said earlier, if things aren't in writing, they can be open to ambiguity and therefore questioning and wide-ranging interpretations at both ends of the scale. But anyway, 
you look at the video and you speak with the players and what you see and hear doesn't marry up with what was shown at the meeting mentioned earlier and what is coming next. Two days after the game, you're sent an email from the secretary of the executive stating that the match review panel has come to a decision and it is attached to the email. Your first instinct when reading the email is, what match review panel? If you'd known there had been one, you could have used it in the past for foul, foul play against your own players. You read the attached. The letter states that the secretary had received complaints of two bite marks and that a formal complaint was made to the referee after the game. The letter states that the two players from the special team followed the process. You're thinking, what process? The match review panel has apparently deliberated on this evidence, according to the letter. And then your player is charged with 400 demerit points. You're thinking, demerit points? What demerit points? You've never heard that mentioned in any games in this jurisdiction. You know this whole thing is shonky because they've got it completely wrong. They've actually got the wrong player. And you've already banned and dealt with the player that did it. Anyway, your accused player is banned until midnight, midnight on a certain day two months away. Guess which team your play your guess which team your team is playing on that certain day in a do or die semi final, taking place only a few hours before the midnight in question. That's right, it's a special team. And now you know this is really dodgy. So imagine Peter Beatty using their influence of running the game to ban a star Melbourne Storm player before an NRL playoff game against the South Sydney Rabbitohs, to use the analogy earlier. You couldn't make it up, could you? Your chairman right back to the secretary, accepting the wrongdoing of your player, but asking him to provide the competition rules and bylaws. They obviously didn't exist. Your chairman also highlights that the referee took no on-field action, and that he wanted a copy of the evidence and a copy of the process that the players from the special team followed. To this day, two years on from that event, as I speak here today, I am not aware of the chairman of the team receiving an acknowledgement or reply to his letter, and neither is he. I am also aware of another case of biting in 2019, same competition, but different teams. Evidence was provided, as it was last time. It was severe, but guess what? No judiciary and the player accused continued to play and certainly didn't receive a two-month ban. Moving to 2018 and 2019, another team has made complaints of the special team chairman standing up in meetings, slandering and dirtying your name at forums and meetings. And saying that teams should be punished for poaching whilst the special team does everything to poach their own players and does on some occasions. And guess what? You are now coach of this other team that they are complaining about. They complain that agents of the special team tell children and their families that if they want to sign for a, prof a certain professional club, they must sign for the special team. And that's the only place they can achieve it. There is a player agent who, by the way, has very questionable history and integrity, closely aligned with the special team and doing much of their bidding. You have no problem with the special team doing everything they can to attract players. Because that's what everybody does. What you have a problem with is the chairman and water carrier of the special team and also the executive, the game, 
using his power to try and punish other teams for doing exactly the same thing. He seems to have a problem with your new team, because guess what? The team sits only a few kilometres away from the special team base. And as things stand, they are rushing through, through the ranks, just like your last team did. And it's not just your new team that is complaining now. They're doing it to others too. This new team of yours accidentally plays some ineligible players in a junior game because of the lack of clarity in the rules around the competition, which seems to be a recurring theme, if you've noticed. Those players get banned from playing whilst a special team does exactly the same thing and gets no punishment. Yours was a genuine mistake whilst the administrator of the game just seemed to, 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 to do what he wants. It's called huge double standards. It could be called corrupt or a dictatorship. Your new team then gets no penalties in a huge game, whilst the opposition get 12. If you'd have won that game, guess who you would have been playing a few weeks later? Yes, the special team. Not receiving one penalty in a game is almost unheard of in rugby league. You ask the ref why you've not received a penalty and did he know? The ref replies, shit happens and laughs. You since learn that the ref is a past associate of the chairman stroke president of the special team and the executive. You simply couldn't make it up. You wonder if you are operating in a free, open and democratic society or some kind of dictatorship regime. If Sasha Baron Cohen mimicked some of these scenes in his film The Dictator, it would pick thick perfectly. Your players are simply devastated and know they have not had a fair crack at the game, which had huge ramifications. They are all aged 17 and 18 and under. They are children. Please make your own mind up about these comments. Let us know your thoughts. Please don't stay quiet and please let us know what should happen to the people associated. No laws have been broken, but many people's hearts and many people's spirits have. Obviously, we've not named names. It could be anywhere in the world. There's a reason for that. <clears throat> but I will say this. If you knew exactly who and where we were talking about, you would be shocked. Um, it is essentially one of the biggest and most important areas in the world of rugby league. It could be anywhere in the world, but it does impact hundreds and hundreds of people. It is so sad that it's like this. Can you imagine Peter Beattie being the chairman of the NRL and South Sydney Rabbitohs and making sure others players, other players got banned before they played the Rabbitohs? Can you imagine that one rule applied to the Rabbitohs and every other rule uh, was different for everyone else? Well, that is exactly what is happening in one of the biggest jurisdictions in the world of rugby league, affecting thousands and thousands of juniors. If you knew the gravity of it, if you knew um, how that world is perceived outside, um, you would be shocked. On to more positive things now, and a great chat with Latin Heat uh, co-founder. Robert Bergen. I have on the line uh, a man who his family originally came from Hull in Northern England. He has red hair, but he's the co-founder of 
rugby league in Latin America. Please explain that one for me, Robert Bergen. <laughs> hey, how are you, mate? Uh, yeah, there's, there's a few ways into it. Um, yeah, but the basic story is my best mate in primary school was from Argentina. Um, and I had probably like a, a lot of people in rugby league, I had a bit of a split family at that time. And while my, my parents were going through a bit of a, a custody battle and that I actually spent a lot of time at my Argentinian mate's house and uh, the World Cup of football was on at that time and, and Argentina did really well and uh, they ended up winning. And all I can remember is being in the atmosphere where, you know, all the family was over and they were cooking empanadas and there's just a was lot this of... 1990, Rob? It was 1986, I think. 86, sorry, yeah. They lost yeah. the final, didn't they, in 1990? What am I talking about? I'm scarred. Yeah. I'm scarred by England's <laughs> failures in those two tournaments. Mate, yeah, so I, I was there, and uh, I guess um, from from a few bleak things that, that just being around his family brought a lot of happiness into my life, and I thought he was just a great bloke. And uh, I sort of said to him, you know, my favourite sport's rugby league. Why doesn't Argentina play rugby league? And then, I think the next year was 87 was the Union World Cup and that was the first time that Argentina had been in a Union World Cup and so then we kind of chatted about it a bit more and I was like well it's a bit strange that, that Argentina is not playing league you guys would be perfect for it and so that happened when you know I was eight or nine years old and then it kind of disappeared into the back shelf for a while and uh, I became a bit of a backpacker and I went around Latin America a couple of times and uh, I sponsored a boy from Columbia through school, etc. It got to a point where instead of helping one kid, I wanted to do or take on a project that, that helped lots of people. And I had that affinity with Latin America. So the, the idea of, of Latin Heat was born. And it, it just so happens that my wife is Brazilian, but the whole idea actually came about before, you know, we started dating. So uh, there, there's a few, few links there. So you sound Australian. You were born in Australia? And, and I've lived in Australia, is that right? The first one in your family to be born in Australia? Yeah, yeah basically. And where, and where did you grow up and, and have you always played rugby league or been involved in rugby league? Yeah, I grew up in, in northwest Brisbane, uh, so around Stafford Heights and Everton Park High School. I always played for West Mitchelton Juniors, which is, yep. is the same club as, as Fatty Vorton and Adrian Lamb and, and John oh, Rebo and Michael yeah. Hagen. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, that's that's kind of my upbringing, and I was that kid at school that I'd take three lots of clothes to school and play league before school. I'd play league at lunchtime and then after school. <laughs> we had my good bum. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't good. think uh, as a, as a kid when I first started playing, I think I was terrible to be honest. So I was um, okay. I was pretty fast, but couldn't hold on to the ball. But then when I got to my mid teams, I, I was I was reasonable. I got invited to a few, you know, Brisbane. Uh, tryouts and and I played Colts for for West Brisbane. Um, but yeah, after that, I, I captained Mitchie in the the Opens team. But I never played, you know, Intra Super Cup or, or NRL or anything like that. Let's keep the Latin stuff separate for a minute, and let's talk about what I would call your old world rugby league experience. So you've ended up, um, you've ended up being involved as an administrator as a as a media officer. Is that right in rugby league? We with one point. QRL, yeah, uh, yeah. So 2004, uh, I was the one, of the first uh, media officer that was taken on full time by Queensland Rugby League. I, I kind of actually wrote to them and suggested the position, and Ross Livermore um, was kind enough to, to take it on. So I did that for four and a bit years, yeah. And uh, then I decided to, to change 
careers completely and, and go into fitness. And that's actually when I traveled a lot to Latin America in that period. Okay. Okay. So your world have collided. I'd say it's a fate thing. And you, at some point you had an epiphany and said, um, sorry about the noise in the background. That'll be somebody ringing to ask about membership for the website, no doubt. Um, <laughs> the, the, or oh, somebody trying to sell me something the, 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 you've had an epiphany at some point, no doubt, and gone. I want to start rugby league in South America. <laughs> can you can you remember back to that point? What 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 clicked in your head, and when did it click, and and what did you do yeah. about it? Um, in in twenty nine to uh, two thousand nine, sorry to two thousand eleven, I went back to to England to Lincolnshire in the in Alford, which is down near Skegness. Mm. And uh, I spent two years looking after my grandparents there and they were kind of declining in health. And my idea was to, to convince them to come back to Australia because they'd actually lived here for 40 years. While yeah. I was there, I spent a lot of time playing football manager on my PC. And I thought, why the hell <laughs> am I investing so much time into this when I could be doing it in reality and making something grow for real human beings and, and being, you know, ultimately more fulfilling to myself. So yeah. I thought always wanted to, to, to take on this idea just you know go out and do it and show people you know that you can turn these aspirations into reality okay and what was the first step how did you go about it uh i think branding was the first thing like creating a logo that people could get behind and, and just presenting a sort of prof professional visage and then um i, I got in touch with taz Batiri and he mentioned to me that there was a a guy who had an Ecuadorian wife and there was a Brazilian um, personal trainer who were also interested in doing mm. something rugby league, mm. but mm. it was mm. kind of directionless at that point. So we kind of brought it together, uh, started it out, and then actually met a, an NRL development officer called Daniel Sarmiento, who's Colombian-born, uh, mm -hmm. and he was the only Spanish-speaking NRL employee at that point in time, and he was great, mate, if we hadn't met Daniel at that point. I don't think it would have gone as far as it has. Okay. Can you give uh, my listeners an overview on what, what has happened in that last decade for, for Latin America Rugby League? Because uh, I think the reality is that a lot of people are just starting to learn about its progress now. But like anything else, it, it's probably been going for a long time and there's been a lot of hard work done. Can you give us a sort of overview of what's happened over the last decade? Yeah, sure. I guess the, the main reason for it, for it coming into being is because there was no pathway previously. Um, mm. I was aware of there being players of South and Central American heritage, but they had no way to, you know, compete even against the Minnow Nations in rugby league. Mm. So we start Latin Heat as a, like a composite team, uh, and the first games were over in Australia, but the idea was always to take those people and their interests and spread it to their families and their friends back in Latin America and also to to redirect the finances and, and since that started out we've now got six latin american countries which are world ranked and i think that'll become 10 within the next say four years or so mm. Uh, mm. and mm. for us that's that's really pleasing so that's and that's how, the long how much how much of a success point or how much of a um, an achievement was latin heat performing at the recent emerging world championships in sydney Oh, massive. I think, you know, five years before that, if we said that's where we'd be, we probably wouldn't have believed it. And, yeah, you know, on paper, it's the first Latin American team that's ever been invited to a global rugby league tournament. So 
that's an achievement in itself. I actually felt on the field we probably underperformed what above below our potential. But um, in terms of the event and the people we brought over, it was great. And, and I know well, yourself, you just went back to Argentina. Some yeah. of the, the guys over there were here as part of that. And, and without that experience, they wouldn't have been able to see different aspects. What was the makeup of the side? So roughly, you know, uh, if you had a squad of 22, how many of them were... Uh, heritage players, how many of them were domestic players from South America and which countries? Yeah, so we uh, started out with the idea that eight out of the players would be from Latin America mm-hmm. and then a couple of nations decided that they didn't have someone who was ready at that level and so what they requested to us was that the money that we were going to spend on their airfares and visas that we gave it to them as a development grant from Latin Heat. So yeah, uh, three countries opted to, to take that option in, in the long run, which, you know, we, it would have been nice to have someone here, but perhaps yeah. it's it going to serve more purpose. So the players that came were um, Ivan Hernandez came from Mexico. Uh, we had two wow. come across Chile uh, and we ended up having two uh, players plus an administrator come from Argentina. To mm-hmm, come across, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the thing is that some of the others, although they were based in Australia, they were born and raised in Latin America. So we had a couple of Colombians there that just here on you know student visas, and and they got to partake as well. If I can just interrupt you, people who are critical of the whole heritage thing need to take a hard look at themselves because number one, I've said this a thousand times on this podcast, and I reckon you'll agree with me. Most of us are our fruit salads. We have a bit of everything in us, you know. We we have we may have been born in Australia, but we've got a parent from Brazil and a parent from England or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the heritage thing is going to become more and more. Secondly, you've just talked without being prompted about some of the difficulties that can come up with getting players in too early from the domestic scene because rugby league is a very brutal sport um at the very least you need to be prepared to run back and forward 10 meters in defense for 80 minutes um and that's without the collision and Mm. sometimes it can be unsafe can't it to put somebody in from um a development nation who's played a couple of games at best uh, would be the equivalent of a school game in a non-competitive competition in, in England or Australia. And then yeah, I think... them into a, into a championship where there might be some semi-professional athletes or something like that. Thirdly, we're a sport that doesn't have a pot of money, mate, that we can just dip into, you know, and, and we have to, you know, and, and people who are critical of these things don't really understand the nitty-gritty, do they? You, you, you getting those players over would have been a huge undertaking. Yeah, oh, mate, and I think the, the thing is, if you look at people saying we're all heritage players, a country like Chile, yeah, they've got quite a heavy percentage of players who've grown up in Australia, but then Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, almost 100% of their teams have been born over there. But without Chile setting the example and having that next level of play for them to go to, they don't have an opponent, they don't have anyone to learn off, they don't have anything to aspire to. So, you know, is it... <laughs> You, you you don't don't have a complete picture unless you get to draw from all of those um, little pots. That's right. That's right. What's the future for Latin America? I mean, there's a lot of noise around Brazil, obviously, at the minute. Do you want to start with that and then maybe talk about some of the other countries? 
Yeah, for the listeners that don't know, Brazil is qualified for the 2021 Women's uh, Rugby League World Cup, which will make it the the first team to, or first nation from that part of the world to qualify for a World Cup. Um, Chile took part in the men's qualifiers last year, but lost to the USA. Um, And then next year, there's going to be America's Cup, where they'll play in Jamaica. And my understanding at this point in time is that Chile has to play against Brazil to see who will make that for the men's. So um, there's things happening there. I can see Argentina and Colombia coming online soon. Mexico's had a domestic competition longer than anyone else, but they've just lacked a bit of opposition and probably momentum uh, to keep them going. I, I can see Peru going ahead in the coming months. Uh, yeah. Guyana's born for it. Like that, that just needs some coordination over there. But their physical presence is, you know, you're talking about people that will be able to step into professional competitions here. They're the guys that are built for it naturally. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If there's an Emerging Nations World Cup 2021, will there be a Latin Heat team, or will it be a few different nations? Do you think, or maybe uh, a few different nations in the big comp and? Latin heat in a lower comp. What what do you envisage? What's the future hold? I think initially, as soon as you said that, I think it would be individual teams. But, yeah, there is yeah. the possibility that if some of them can't afford to go, that they might band together and, and go into a composite group again, like we saw last time, if it's not okay. the case. Uh, all right. Um, two more questions to finish off. Number one, if people want to find out more about Latin America Rugby League, where can they go? What can they do? The best place is really our Facebook page. We update that more often than anything, and that's uh, you can find it by typing in Latin Heat Rugby League or in the URL type Latin American Rugby League. Um, and, yeah, if they wanted to email more, my email is robert at sambatimes.com. And they can also uh, contact through there. And if they want to hear more of Robert Bergen's dulcet tones or... Or anything in general, what, what what your own personal enterprises or work that you're doing, uh, where can they get hold of you, mate? Sure. Well, I do a, a little bit of a, um, a, a podcast through Facebook called The Judgmental Ginger, and that's much <laughs> rugby league. Um, and then are, I, you I, I have... are you judgmental? Are you judgmental or are you quite <laughs> I think oh, I think you're judgmental. I think more more opinionated is probably the word. But give me one example. That... Let me let me let me test you. Give me one example. Oh, I think that rugby league should be a sport for uh, should be a vehicle for political views, and people should be activists for what they they believe in. Um, I don't, I'm not of the opinion that um, sport should be politics free. It, it's out there, you know. Why not let it be a passion for people and use it to to make this cultural change and social change that they want. I agree with you. I think I'd rather them do it on a sports field or make a little protest, you know, like the whole, um, the fella Kaepernick or whatever he's called, the fella in the NFL who took a knee, you know, whether you agree with him or not, you know, he didn't harm anyone. He might have, no. he might have insulted the flag a little bit, but what he did do is he promoted discussion and that's a lot better than having a political fallout and sending in a load of nuclear or or <laughs> uh, ballistic missiles to sort out those problems. So well, um, that's the I thing. Indigenous players that that didn't sing the national anthem. There was no yeah. antagonism about that. There was it yeah. wasn't an aggressive confrontation. It was a, a yeah. passive sort of show. So it was a statement yeah. to say this is important to me, and it's not like they shouted over the Australian national anthem or anything like that. No, I agree right. with you, mate. So. The judgmental ginger. 
I think you'll have to get me on that. Get me on that because me and you can have some great discussions. It's been great. It's been it's been great talking to you, mate. I'm going to stop this interview right now. You take care and all the best for the Latin Heat. Cheers for that. Thanks, Lee. Stay on, mate. We'll talk on it. And there we go for episode 11 of the Hard Yard Rugby League podcast. If uh, any of these issues resonate with you, you'd like to talk more about them, remember it's uh, admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Twitter is at rlcoach on the net and Facebook and Instagram are at rugbyleaguecoach. Please have a look at our website, rugbyleaguecoach.com.au, which is there for coaches, players, administrators and S&C coaches. Have a great couple of weeks in rugby league. Um, Keep doing your hard yards. You're doing a great job. See you later.